This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Steven. What? What do you even, what do you even well, say to that? Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, here sure. we are. Um, so middle of May and spring bears in full swing and we're still talking sheep talking hunting that's all we ever do right we we're always so busy but it's it's rewarding so we if if we're not hunting we get to talk about it right yeah and that's the cool thing we get to talk about all these cool people that come on the show and they're either hunters they're conservationists and um so you know you're we're we're living it every once a week uh it's fantastic and for all our listeners out there thank you guys and gals for being part of this i just got a couple emails about um, people that want to uh, enter our contest for uh, for our, our giveaway contest, we talked about that on yeah, yeah. episode seventy two with uh, with Helen. Um, so uh, yeah, let us know. Get entered for uh, the membership drive that's ongoing right now. Um, uh, so um, talk a little bit about that. Our membership drive, Stephen. Oh, what the first prize is what uh, a sturgeon trip, which has yep. been. Uh, requested by a lot of our our our, uh, our people looking to sign up or upgrade and they said do something a little different so we did and uh, yeah it's a fully guided eight hour sturgeon trip on the fraser uh we got a frontiersman gear uh, knife uh swag package from wild sheep society so yeah we got a ton of different reasons to join other than the obvious that we're the most kick-ass membership group that there is uh in the province and i'd, I'd like to say north america but that's just tooting our own horn so yeah we, we also got prizes for you so so sign up it's pretty awesome yeah over fifteen hundred dollars in prizes and yeah just sign up renew uh upgrade and uh the more you spend on a membership the more entries you get mm-hmm. and uh yeah cool giveaway so um yeah so this is a cool episode, episode 74 with uh, David Wise. David is an accomplished athlete, oh. <laughs> uh, three-time uh, medal winner. He's won two Olympic golds, uh, Sochi in 2014, Penyang in 2018, and um, had a great games in Beijing. Ended up picked silver up silver. Medal. Yeah. Oh, God. Four-time, four-time X Games gold medalist. Like, just, just an accomplished, accomplished athlete. And the cool part is a hunter. One that's that, the key uh, takeaway, right? One, one that uh, definitely met controversy and didn't shy away with it and just said, yeah, you know what? This is who I am. I'm proud to be a hunter and lost some sponsors, gained some sponsors and it was great conversation. This is one I've been trying to put together for damn near six months now. And we finally made it work with his schedule. Busy, busy man. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah, we're pretty fortunate. We're very fortunate and and grateful to have him on the show. Uh, he just got back from the White House, um, hanging out with the president. Um, you know, pretty awesome to that he would come and spend time with us. And you know, I think that's the key takeaway here, Steve, is that uh, David Weiss has met a lot of adversity when it comes to hunting. He is a oh, hunter, yeah. uh, and he's he's a legitimate hunter. He's not like a you know a, a Instagram hunter. He's the real deal. He's been hunting since he's eight years old. Uh, he lives, breathes, sleeps it. It makes him a better athlete, according to him. Um, makes him a better, um, better person, and it talks about his connection with hunting and wildlife. And so it was pretty cool. I think there's some really cool takeaways for all of us. You know, whether you're a Kyle and Steve, uh, an everyday person, or you're an Olympic athlete. You know, we are all ambassadors, and he talks about that in this podcast. And you know, this is kind of our one campfire message. You know, it mm-hmm. really is consistent with that. Um, and that's the cool thing is when we have someone like a David Wise or somebody that's, you know, famous for something else other than hunting. And then they, they show how hunting has touched their life and how important it is. And they talk that narrative. It's such an important part of, of sort of normalizing hunting and sort of getting people on board with what we're doing. Right. Oh, totally agree. It's was right up the one campfire alley. And we did, we didn't even talk about one campfire to him and I haven't in the past. And it just, it, it shows that it, it's a desperately needed message that we're, we're putting out and, ambassadors like him are doing a hell of a job right and yeah we we get into that uh, quite a bit and yeah i just i can't say enough good things about about uh, him taking his time to, to to give us an hour of uh of his busy day 
Absolutely. And I think that, you know, if there's any takeaway from this podcast and, and you know, our listeners, please let us know what your thoughts are. But, you know, he all, he says we're all ambassadors. So I hope, mm-hmm. you know, he there's a bit of an inspiration there for our listeners to go out and make sure you're, you know, promoting what you do and, and you know, have important talking points and, and getting people to understand why we hunt and why it's important to us and, and, and all the reasons we do it and, and the right reasons, right? Like, um, you know, people identify with the trophy hunter and that sort of stuff. And we know that that narrative is not working for us these days. So let's talk about the stuff that we love to do. It's, it's not like we're lying about it. You know, talk about your connection with the, the outdoors and, um, the, you know, why you do it for the food and all aspects of that too. Right. So, um, I think we're learning a lot as hunters. We're learning We're you know, we're, mm-hmm. we've, we've made some mistakes in the past. The way we portrayed what we do has not been done in the best light. It's been misconstrued. It's been used against us, but I think we're getting smarter and doing a better job on how we talk about what we do. Oh, absolutely. We are. It's, it, it's uh, heartening to see as somebody that manages essentially admins damn near hundred thousand hunters on Facebook. Very rare. Do you see the, the gripping grins we saw five years ago? Uh, people are, are taking that time to pose the animal properly and to to tell a story with a picture. And that's how we're going to win the uh, the hearts and minds of those that don't really understand what we're about is, is to show that uh, a, a picture is a memory and instead of uh, an accomplishment. You know what I mean? It's I, I want to remember this in my own way and this is how I'm going to do it instead of going look what i got so mm-hmm. it's it's good and uh the message is is needed and as we get into an ambassador like david is just desperately needed and he does such a good job of it well said with that episode 74 talking to olympic champion three-time medal winner mr david weiss enjoy across canada and throughout the world if you come across a campfire in the woods on a mountaintop or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Mr. David Wise, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Cool. So I guess for you, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. I know uh, we've been trying to touch base here for about six months, and then you had some little excuse about some, going to China to do, I don't know, there was something in China that was going on. So <laughs> yeah, tell us about what, what's, what's gone on the last couple of months here with you, and, and congratulations on uh, another medal. Uh, un- amazing. Incredible. So let's talk about <laughs> yeah. the last six months for you. Oh man, I, it's hard to even like, it's, it's crazy. Cause you, when you do something like go to the Olympics, um, the moments like the every day seems super long, but the, when you look back on it, it seems like it was just yesterday. Cause I can't believe it's been almost, you know, it's been two and a half months since the games already. And that feels like it was yesterday. Cause I've just been on this basically just riding a tornado ever since then. And this being my third Olympics, I kind of knew that was going to happen, but still, it still, it still surprises me, even though I feel like I've anticipated it and prepared for everything and gotten everything all dialed. Um, it just, yeah, it just gets away from you. So it's been a whirlwind couple months, but, um, I'm excited to sit down and talk about hunting. So that's what I, whenever I'm stuck in the, in the mire out there, you know, I just got back from the white house. I did some stuff on Capitol Hill. Whenever I'm in places that are, that make me uncomfortable, like big cities um it's it's hunting that's my my mental solace that i'm like all right it's it's almost time pretty soon i'm gonna be going chasing things with my bow again (laughs) i'd love to hear that well and we love talking about that stuff too and so you know we definitely are going to jump into the hunting stuff but uh you know just to touch a little bit on that um you know you've had this journey you've been to sochi you've been to penyang uh two gold medals there you went into beijing are you are you going to compete in four years do you think that's going to happen or what does that look like for you are you completely retired with with regards to olympics can you do it in four years what are your thoughts on that david that's been the running question for myself and everybody else around me lately 
Um, <clears throat> and it's kind of interesting because I was thinking about my second Olympics in Pyeongchang being my last Olympics. And then we are kind of like, oh, no, I think we could go for one more. Um, but now on the back end of my third Olympics, I'm, I still don't feel done. Uh, if, any, if anything, like health-wise, I'm, I'm better than I've ever been before. Like I feel stronger. I'm maybe a little bit more wise about how I train, how much time I spend on recovery. Um, so I don't feel done yet. Now, I'm not going to say that that might not change in the next four years because four years is kind of both a long and short amount of time, depending on what you're looking at. So I, I think that I'll probably try to go for one more, um, but we're going to take it year by year. So in, ter in terms of like the right year right now, yeah, I'm still training. I'm still going to compete next year. I'll still do X Games and all the stuff that we normally do. Um, <clears throat> and then kind of we're going to take it every year in the spring. I'm going to sit down with my wife and talk about our family and how things are going and if we can keep keep playing this game for another year. That's awesome, man. So this last two and a half months, like you said, has been this crazy whirlwind. And of course, you know, it's springtime and I know there's, you know, spring bear seasons around. There's turkey hunting. Uh, have you gotten the field at all? You probably haven't even picked up your bow in the last two and a half months, have you? No, I haven't really picked up my bow much, but um, I live fairly close to some pretty decent hog and turkey hunting. So um, I, I guess it was almost a month ago now. Uh, we had a little family camping trip where we went down to Northern California or over to Northern California and, uh, did a little rifle hunting for wild hogs and tried to find some turkeys, but was unsuccessful in finding turkeys. But I was able to harvest a couple wild hogs and grind them up with my son and, and make some, so the, the freezer's looking good again. It kind of, this time of year is when I start to stress a little bit, like, oh man, I gotta go out and get something because it's starting to look a little thin in there. We try to, as a family, we try to eat exclusively wild game meat if we can so we don't buy meat from the store um it's both a health decision and i think it helps me have an excuse to hunt more yeah yeah that's awesome you know and that's the one thing i've you know kind of you know obviously followed you professionally and what you're doing but you know on a hunting aspect it you know i always love the narrative and it's a narrative we all think about but with you people listen because of who you are and, and, you know, talking about the free range organic and, and, uh, and living that lifestyle, right. You know, a lot of people, you know, have this perception of what hunting is and, and the trophy hunter. And I love how people talk about you, like you're a meat hunter. It's funny. And, you know, I actually, I, I didn't read that wall street journal, but, uh, article, but I heard it from Jim Shockey. Jim was the one who talked to us about it on the podcast. And, uh, it's just interesting to, to hear how, you know, if they talk about hunter, they have to clarify the trophy hunter or a meat hunter, and and you're identified right. as a meat meat hunter, which is fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we want everyone to think about us as, because really, as a general rule, that's why we're there in the field. So, right, um, even a trophy hunter is a meat hunter. That's the that's the mm -hmm. common misconception. Because if I have a if I have a choice between a tiny buck and a huge one, I'm going to shoot the huge buck. I just have been labeled as a meat hunter because I most of the time shoot the small <laughs> buck that I had an opportunity to shoot. <laughs> yeah, I feel that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. And, and, you know, like that's such an important part. And that's, you know, that's where someone like yourself has the ability with the following that you have to sort of, you know, normalize hunting, if you will, right? You know, when they look at guys dressed in plaid and driving their pickup truck and they got, you know, whatever, it, it's not it's that's not the image that is positive for the hunting community based on what's gone on these, you know, in the last few decades, not that there's anything wrong with those people in that image, but when they look at a David wise wearing first light gear and he's, you know, he, he's strapping on his gear and he's out on the Hill, people like, Holy crap. And then that, you know, that really normalizes hunting for people, which mm -hmm. is, you know, it's so important. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I have the opportunity to do too is with, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I probably converted three or four of my peers uh, to at least be recreational hunters, but everybody on my team and most of the teams that we travel with. So uh, competing in half pipe, we generally go to the same places uh, as the snowboard half pipe team. A lot of times the snowboard and ski slope style team or big ski slope style and big air team. Um, so every one of those people I've had an opportunity to cook a wild game meal for. And so even if none of, not every single one of them has been converted to hunters, they're at least <clears throat> at this point respectful of hunting because they're like, wow, 
this is this is what it's about. It's about this wild game meal that he's able to put forward for us. And uh, so, yeah, it's <clears throat> that's one of the things. That's that's part of what kind of I guess gave me the motivation to be more public about my hunting was like there's just such I see such a misconception about hunting in our society and I felt like well it's such a it's such a part of who I am that I feel like I have the place and opportunity to talk about it and bring positive light to it yeah and you've certainly done that so do you do you look at yourself as an ambassador for hunting like I know people in the hunting community do look at you like that um, do you feel like you're an ambassador? Do you feel a responsibility there? Yeah, and I think <clears throat> on a personal level, everybody is an ambassador for hunting. Uh, everybody who hunts should should kind of, I don't know, I don't want to be critical, but we should make decisions for how we go about hunting as if we're all ambassadors. Because if, we, if, if people were a little bit smarter out there in the woods sometimes, we'd have a lot less of the problems that we have. Um, so, you know, I, that, I definitely see that as, as kind of my platform in the hunting industry is, um, <clears throat> I don't, I don't pretend to know as much about hunting as anybody who's hunts way more than I do, but it's still a huge part of who I am. And, um, so I, yeah, every time I go out in the woods, I'm, I'm thinking about it from, and that's why I bring a camera along and film it and share those experiences with other people through my, you know, social media channels and stuff like that is because, I want to show this side of hunting that we experience the, the respect for the animals, the respect for creation, you know, just going out there and enjoying uh, a, something that we're very fortunate to have. I've spent a lot of time in Europe and they have good hunting there, but it's very different from what we have here in North America. The North American um, conservation model is really is something that we can hang our hats on. And so I've, I just feel fortunate to be from here and, and be able to enjoy those things. So um, if anything, I, I, one of my big things is, well, everybody should at least try this. You don't have to be a lifelong hunter, but you have to at least try it so you can, so you can understand what you're hating on uh, a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I got a question out of interest. You talked about, you know, obviously with your, your schedule, you travel everywhere, right? Like you're on an airplane, you're, you're going, you know, obviously you were just in China for the Olympics in Beijing, how do you, so you talk about, you, you try to have a freezer full of wild meat and eating healthy and organic. How do you do that when you're in China? You obviously you're not taking a, a tenderloin with your backstrap with you when you're, when you're over there. So do you, and I know that as a professional athlete, like you're really, you guys are really regimented on your, you know, what you eat and how you eat. And, you know, like even just, you know, you're going to eat the proper stuff up to the games because you don't want to eat something weird over in China and you end up sick and that you can't compete. So how do you manage something like that? Do you eat? you know, consistently when you're at home, but then when you're away, you have a different diet or how does that work? Yeah. For the most part, um, like this Olympic year, we only had one event in Canada and then every, all of the other qualifiers were in the U S. So <clears throat> fortunately, I mean, I can take a Yeti soft sided cooler on any airplane that I want to take it on as long as the meat's frozen. So I usually travel with a pretty big supply uh, I usually bring more wild game meat than I need for any particular trip because then people I meet along the way, I can be like, here, try these, try this venison backstrap, or here's some, some, uh, you know, wild pork broths that me and my son made, try them out. And, a, you know, a little bit of venison diplomacy, if you will. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, for the most part, I, I eat the same diet all year long, but then all those things change. Like I couldn't even bring meat into Canada when I came up to Canada because you can't bring meat across the international borders. So uh, it's, it's kind of a balance. And one of the things I think that was talked about a lot during the Beijing games was that, um, you know, athletes weren't getting the food that they were used to. And I definitely saw that firsthand. I saw some of my, uh, some of my peers and they just looked tired. They looked undernourished. And that's because of the food that they were eating, they couldn't find, enough to eat that they could like. And I guess in that way, I'm kind of fortunate. I have an iron gut. I've never, I've never had indigestion problems. I've always been able to just kind of, um, you know, eat whatever. And so whenever I get to a place like that, where I know the food's going to be different, um, I just actively, I treat eating like a job. Like I don't, I, I focus in on the things nutrition, nutrition quality wise, and I, I can, I'm decent at ignoring the taste or I bring a bunch of hot sauce. Like I'm a big, 
I'm a big Sriracha guy. So I brought Sriracha with me to China. And so any, like I would just, I ate a ton of broccoli. I would try to find the least greasy meat that I could. Cause I really do perform well on a, on a meat based diet. I I've tried vegetarian and vegan just for fun to see if it worked and it did not work for me. So, um, it's kind of, there's a, almost an art to competitive to competition there in the fact that you have to learn how to, you have to learn how to perform at your optimal level when conditions are ideal, but then you also have to figure out how to make the conditions the most ideal you can when they're not. And so that's kind of was my approach in China. I was like, all right, I'm going to, and, and every third day they would have, um, they would have salmon. And, uh, so I would just know, all right, this is day three. I'm going to, I'm going to eat a bunch of that salmon. Cause I know that's good quality. Uh, you know, and a lot of the meats over there were just <clears throat> drenched in sauce, but it wasn't particularly good sauce necessarily. I mean, it was just cafeteria food. I think everybody hated on the food, maybe more, more so than they should have, because it really wasn't too bad, but you did have to be a little creative in figuring out what, what was going to make your athlete machine run smoothly. <laughs> I'm a huge hot sauce guy. Kyle can vouch that he's been to my place and I've got probably 30 to 50 hot sauces of various heat levels and tastes. And I, I agree with you. There's nothing hot sauce can't make taste good. <laughs> so I, I do. Yeah, exactly. Worst comes to worst. You just drench it in hot sauce and it's all good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, awesome. So David, you grew up with this hunting, uh, hunting in, in, you know, I know your dad was started out kind of on his own. He was an adult onset hunter that we call, call him these days. And then got you involved. I think you were on your first hunt at eight years old, eight years old and watched your sister. It seems like we're, we, anyone that's grown up with hunting, it's normalized. We're fine. But anyone that hasn't, you know, there's that disconnect. So, um, I guess let's, let's just start there. Um, you know, does your sisters, are they still hunting or how does that work? Are you the only one in the family? What is, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, it was my dad, you know, he, he hunted a little bit here and there growing up. He was, he's always been more of a fisherman. I think even to this day, he identifies more with fishing than with hunting because every once in a while he still hunts with me every year we do our Nevada archery tags together and, um, I'll be in the middle of spotting deer and he'll look, he'll, he'll find streams cause he loves mountain stream fishing for like small trout is his favorite thing to do. And I'll be, I'll be hunting and he's literally looking up, Oh, look, there's a stream over there. Let's go see if there's any fish in it. So he, uh, he kind of got into hunting because my sisters were, um, twins and they were getting to that age where, um, they could get, get their license and go hunting. And he just thought, Oh, this would be a cool thing to do with my family. So um, they're four years older than me, which made it, you know, I was, I would just tag along and I was eight. And, um, I think I was always more excited about it than they were. Even when they were the ones with the tag and the ones behind the gun, pulling the trigger, I was still more excited even then. So I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's something in about hunting that is just innate, like you just have it or you don't. Um, <clears throat> One of my sisters has zero interest in hunting whatsoever. She's always excited to share wild game meat with us, but she just experienced it as a kid and said, this is not for me. My other sister is, you know, she's totally willing. She's a willing participant. And um, <clears throat> she just finished her residency in medical uh, as a surgeon. So mostly her, I think her deterrent from hunting very much has been her schedule, um, not being able to hunt very much, but um, she was living, I live in Reno, Nevada. She lived, she was living down in Las Vegas and she would, um, we would always put in for tags cause we still lived in the same state. She just never drew a tag, unfortunately, while she was living there and now she's over in Orlando. So, um, but I hunted with her, her husband and uh, now I have two brother-in-laws. My other sister just got married this last summer. So, uh, we actually have a man group, uh, for Nevada archery where all the, the in-laws are getting together and my dad and we're going to go out and see if we can do some archery mule deer hunting. So, um, it's, it's definitely stuck with me more so probably more so like I'm the biggest hunter in my family, including my dad. And now I, I like, he's, he's the one who introduced me to it, but I've kind of taken on this mentorship role because, uh, he still has yet to kill his first deer with a bow. So, um, he's still, <clears throat> still seeking that, but he's still willing to go out there and try it. So, uh, yeah, we have fun. We have fun doing it whenever we can together. 
That's very cool. So, you know, we talk about this, you know, this legacy or being mentored, and I know you're a big mentor um, for a number of people. How about the kids? I know your kids are out on hunts with you, um, and your daughter being the eldest, is she is she getting her ta- her license anytime soon, or what does that look? Is she interested in it? Yeah. So, I made a mistake with my daughter, and I'm sure some people listening to this can relate. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to introduce her to guns in a in a positive, you know, way where she wasn't going to be scared of them. So I was like, oh, the perfect thing to shoot for you is the air rifle. And so we got the air rifle out and we were shooting. And at one point I just didn't pay close enough attention. And she put her eye too close to the scope. Cause as a little kid, the gun's kind of awkward. It's big. It's hard to get your eye in there where you can see. And she put her eye right up next to it. And even though it's an air rifle, it's, it's, you know, it's a pellet gun, one of those breakover pellet guns that, shoot they shoot like over a thousand feet a second they're still pretty powerful and there is a little bit of kick and so she scope ringed herself even with the air rifle and ever since then she's like don't like guns dad i don't like them um so i've gotten her to shoot a couple times since then but every time she's like no dad i don't want to do it i don't want to shoot the gun she's all about archery equipment but i'm like oh spot and stock bow hunting is like one of the hardest things you can do <laughs> so um <clears throat> i'm i'm gonna just try to ease her into it whereas my son who's three years younger he's she's 10 he's seven uh he loves guns he just wants anything to do with guns anytime i let him shoot anything like that so uh maybe the story will be kind of similar to how my story was with my family like my sisters did hunt and they and i think my daughter will hunt but i don't think it's going to be her first passion like it's like it's one of mine Whereas my son is like, he's just counting down the days till I take him out in the field. That's awesome. What's the age for getting your hunting license in uh, Nevada? Uh, so you can, you can hunt with your family. You can hunt with a licensed hunter from like age wet, whatever on. So I think this coming season, like we'll, we'll probably go out and do, I'm going to get my daughter like a little single shot 410 or something, something very, you know, mm-hmm palatable for her and we're, we'll do, we'll go do the uh like the youth days because the, the they open the youth there's like a youth waterfowl season that opens one weekend before general waterfowl season and from what i've heard you know the birds are not used to being hunted yet so you you go out there with your kids and the kids just have a ball so mm-hmm. like we're probably going to do stuff like that this uh this time around and then um <clears throat> And then age, at 12 is when you can have your own hunting license and put in for big game tags and stuff like that. So I think yeah. when I start, when I started hunting, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've been talking to some folks about it. I, I remember just like counting down the days until I could put in for big game tags. But I remember going bird hunting with my family before that even. So I always told people I started hunting at 12, but the reality is I probably was 10 or 11 somewhere. Right. Yeah, yeah. You need to be 10 in BC to get your own license. And, but yeah, I, I got my, my daughter, uh, a 22 for her fifth birthday. She's nine now and she absolutely loves it. Open sites or little peep sites and it's a great way of getting them into it. Yeah. But yeah, it scoping yourself would suck, especially at that age. <laughs> yeah. I was, I felt so stupid. It's like a couple of times I've been teaching people how to shoot archery. And the, the, the first mistake most people make is just, destroying their forearm by putting their by <laughs> holding yep. the bow at the wrong angle and i yep. had one friend who was like just deathly af- afraid of blood like just you know or i know i don't even know if he's afraid of it but he just had that whatever that disorder is um where when you see blood it makes you pass out and <laughs> he was shooting so good that i kind of relaxed my guard as the as the range officer out there in the backyard and he thwapped his arm worse than i've ever seen anybody and he had this huge hematoma on his forearm and that was the last time he ever shot a bow because he couldn't handle the fact that oh make himself bleed doing it so yeah you gotta you gotta be smart about how you teach people to do things yeah i string slapped myself uh when i first got into it shooting 60 pounds learning and i just you didn't quite have that angle enough and whack it was like oh so i I grabbed a wrist guard and learned real quick to to watch that angle yeah so david um is your daughter is she shooting uh a bona did you get her something like is it a stick bow or what does she have Uh, probably not a compound yeah I, i just got her a little you know bottom of the barrel compound bow you know okay it has a, it has a peep sight and everything it, nice. it's it's you know peep sight three pins she's pulling like 25 pounds so the arrows when they 
leave the bow look like a rainbow, but it's still fun. <laughs> That's cool. Actually, yeah. my son pretty much he pretty much um, <clears throat> confiscated that bow from her because I bought her that bow, and he was still too small. He was still shooting the little PVC stick bow that I made, and <clears throat> then when she kind of plateaued or decided that or you know she just lost interest in shooting very much he started picking up her bow so that's kind of become his bow and now she really wants me to buy her a pink one that's what that's every time we get the bows out she's like dad when are you gonna buy me a pink one and so (laughs) or a purple or something Mm -hmm. something girly so i guess (laughs) i'm due for a i'm due to follow through on that (laughs) that's awesome um Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, you. Like, you, you know, you think back, like, you know, you, you started hunting at eight, roughly, you know, on that first hunt with your, you know, your siblings. And you've kind of done it all. You've hunted caribou. You've done tons of stuff. What what stands out for you? Like, what's the most memorable hunt for you in your entire sort of hunting resume, if you will? Oh, that's a really good question. One of the things that I love about hunting and why it's become, I think, such a huge part of who I am is that you can really, like hunting draws you into places that you've never been. Um, Just the fact that we, as a community, we share so much affinity for these awesome, vast landscapes. Um, I don't know. It's just so cool. Like I've, I've had the opportunity now to hunt in Chile and I've hunted in France and I've hunted in all these cool places. And, um, I cannot get those dings to stop. It's annoying me so bad. Um, anyways, I just love the fact that it takes me places, even in my home state, there are parts of my state that I, you know, I'm born and raised in Nevada. I've lived here 31 years now. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, there's, huge chunks of the state that I would not have seen or experienced. And they're some of my favorite parts of the state. If I didn't have a bow in my hands or a rifle in my hands or a certain tag that I drew, you know, half the time I, I put in for, you know, everybody knows the tag application system where you put in your five choices or four choices or whatever, whatever your state says. And half the time I would drive, draw my fourth or fifth choice, which was just like something I threw on there at the end. And then I'm like, Oh, I drew a tag in this part of the state. Never been there. I guess I'll go figure that out. And that and those have become some of my like year in year out hunting spots. So I just love that about hunting is that it draws you in. It draws you further into the the wilderness than you would ever go. I mean, I, I do enjoy backpacking, but I would not enjoy it nearly as much as I. I will never enjoy it nearly as much as I do when I'm backpacking with my bow, with the opportunity of potentially chase animals. And half the time you get to like what you think your furthest point is back in the wilderness. And that's when you see an elk that's three miles further in. You're like, All right. I guess I'm going three, three miles further than I anticipated. Um, so I just love that aspect. But in terms of like my, <clears throat> my favorite moments in hunting, a lot of them have been like solo hunts where I just, you know, with my skiing training schedule, I'm constantly trying to like sneak in these three or four day hunts. And I usually hunt during the midweek when nobody else can, cause they're working. So I'll go out by myself and I've been lucky enough to get a <clears throat> bull elk by myself that I called in. Um, I shot my biggest, one of my biggest public land mule deer ever by myself. And um, there's like this weird level of satisfaction with that. It's not like, I mean, it really is enjoyable to share those experiences with people, but I feel like there's some something in us that just, I, I don't know, I guess maybe I just feel like a better hunter when I'm by myself too. I, I'm more, more innate. I just make decisions quicker. There's nobody to, there's nobody, nobody to debate the decision with. I just go in there and I do it. Um, I've been most successful by myself. So I would say probably my, my first elk by myself with my bow that was that was probably my my favorite moment so far that's awesome and you said you called that one in uh yeah actually i called so i had been cow calling and had given up on seeing any elk and then i was walking out and it was just lucky i mean half of hunting is preparation half of its luck Mm -hmm. i luckily walked the way out that the elk was walking in to come check out my cow calls. And all of a sudden we were staring at each other at 25 yards and I was able to slip an arrow on the string and make it happen. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I called him in, but more, more, it was more like we just bumped into each other and it was his, it was unfortunately his last sunrise. Very cool. So did you shoot him straight on or was he quartering or what, how did you, what kind of shot did he give you? Yeah, that, that was before I've shot a couple of elk straight on since then. Um, but I was so young in my hunting experience. I didn't even know that was, I didn't even know that was a possibility. So I just drew back, man. I held my bow back for like, it felt like five minutes, but it was probably like a minute and a half waiting for him to turn. He, fi he finally turned and I shot him broadside. Oh, even with awesome. the let off, it's still not a fun thing to hold back there. It's Oh, man. It's, Luckily, oh. it was only 25 yards. So even oh. though I was shaking like a leaf, I yeah. knew I could make that shot. That's awesome. Very cool. Uh, so is there, obviously you're an archery guy, um, and, but you know, you grew up shooting, I guess, a rifle and stuff and, and obviously shotgun cause you like the bird stuff. Is there, is, is your favorite elk? Is it mule deer? Is it, is there one that you, you aspire to do or is there a hunt that you want to do? Um, yeah. So my favorite is probably always going to be, uh, elk archery because I just love the, I love the, the language aspect of it. Um, I'm probably not a very good caller, but I've, I'm good enough to trick them once in a while. And that's good enough for me. Um, so I really enjoy that aspect of just the conversation that you have out there. Um, and elk is one of my favorite things. That's definitely my favorite meat to eat. And the fact that you have such a high yield, like you go, if you get an elk, you can feed your family for six months, you know, even, even with an athlete's diet, I eat, you know, 5,000 calories a day sometimes when I'm training. And I, even, even with that high calorie intake, um, I can still feed my, myself and my family for a long time when I get an elk. So there's something so satisfying about being able to take one animal and really feed your family for a long period of time. Um, but in terms of aspirational hunts, I mean, I've got like 17 points for sheep, tags here in Nevada. So one of these years I'm going to draw a Nevada wild sheep tag. I would love to hunt doll sheep at some point or stone sheep. I just love, <clears throat> like I was talking about earlier, I love those hunts that, that force you to go further in than you normally would or go further up or higher or in more rugged terrain. Um, so I definitely have some aspirational hunts like that too. I've, I've tried a couple times now to, to get a moose with my bow and have been unsuccessful so far. I hunted moose in Can or moose in uh, Alaska for like six days by myself, and um, didn't didn't bring one home. So that's still on my list. Right on. And your caribou—that was an Alaska hunt as well, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say. We're yeah, that was, to the same, yeah. It was the same trip. I hunted I hunted caribou and moose that same trip. So we hunted caribou on the front end, and then I went back in by myself and tried to. I actually did call in a couple of bulls, which, you know, having literally learned how to call moose on YouTube on the way to Alaska, uh, <laughs> I felt like calling in any bull was great, but they weren't, they weren't legal bulls. They were just raghorns, but it was still cool. Called them right in and they're looking around like, Oh, I don't think that the cow that I was looking for is here. <laughs> like, you are not the bull I was looking for either. This is not a good situation for either of us. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, I was going to say, we got to get you on a sheep hunt and get you hooked in the sheep world. Cause uh, that's, that's our world. Oh. And, and so here, we, here's my pitch to you is we got to get you to sheep show. Um, it's in Reno every year and, but I know it's right in the middle of your ski season too. Right. So um, you're out in the mountain, but uh, we'd love to have you at sheep show and uh, it's at the Reno sparks there. And it's always that second week in January. It's such a great time. Yeah. I, I showed up. I had like one evening <clears throat> two years ago when I was actually in town because it's ironic that sheep shows in Reno and people are always like, Oh yeah, you must come to sheep show. Yeah. I'm like, well, I've never actually been because I am always out of town when that's going on. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so I've, I've, I've seen it. I've seen like what a cool event it is. We actually have another wild sheep based um, nonprofit here in town called uh, Nevada Bighorns Unlimited. And they put on for a local fundraiser. I got to go to that this year. And for, for a local wild sheep fundraiser, that thing is ridiculous. There was like 2,500 people there for the dinner, which, you know, I, I thought that was wild. So it's cool to see how Nevada supports uh, just conservation in that way. 
Yeah, it, it is. I, I was there too, actually. That's funny that you're there. I didn't realize that. I would have looked you up, but uh, I, I, I was, was at the too. MBU banquet. No, you oh, weren't. No, it's the Sheep Show in 2020. I thought that's what you were talking about. No, I'm talking about MBU. I was oh. at MBU this year, same one. So uh, it's too bad that I, I didn't know you were there. I would have looked you up. So yeah, it was a lot of fun that night for sure. So um, got the free hat, the free mugs or free glasses. So yeah, it was pretty oh, cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. My, kids, my kids wrangled up a couple extra free things. They didn't win a gun. Most of, most of the in in years past, a strong majority of the kids who went to that one would go home with a gun. But I think the word got out about that because there was like three times as many kids this year than as there normally is. So <laughs> my kids both still got a they got a hundred dollar gift certificate to Shields, which to them was like gold. Um, so that was cool. It was it was a great experience. Uh, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, it's that is off the hook. The banquet. The thing is, um, you know, that's a. It was a really cool banquet. They do a great job. They're great at fundraising, and it was so much fun. And she, but Sheep Week is a completely different experience. It's just I can't even explain it. Um, and not saying that MBU is is not amazing, but it's like MBU for like four days. So it's yeah. it's pretty cool in that's that awesome. regard. So yeah, we got to get you out next year. I'll definitely be hitting you up, and hopefully you're in town or you get a day or an hour or two, you can come down and hang out. So. Yeah, sounds good. Um, cool. So let's talk about, um, you know, you, you. Well, one thing I'm curious about before we jump into this next part is, does hunting help you be, uh, be a better professional athlete or vice versa? Like, have any of the things you learned hunting helped you on the hill or vice versa? Have, have the stuff you've done on the hill helped you in the field? Yeah, and it's a kind of running joke that I have with my family and friends that every activity that I'm doing at the current current moment is training for the Olympics. So sometimes I'll be like doing yard work with my friends who are, are you know, moving boxes around or whatever. And I, I like look over and I'm like, Hey, we're training for the Olympics right now. How's that feel? <laughs> um, <clears throat> but so that's like, that's kind of a mentality that I've embraced is that every single thing that I can do has potential to make me a better athlete, better competitor, more mentally tough. Um, you know, just, yeah. But in terms of hunting, I would say that that is one of the things that has helped me the most, especially spot and stock bow hunting. Um, <clears throat> like there's an aspect of hunting that, uh, forces you to learn to overcome failure and keep going, especially with a bow, especially spot and stock. You know, you just, you, you have so few opportunities and if you don't do everything exactly right, the opportunity blows up in your face and you get to watch the deer run away. And I can't tell you how many of those stories, I'm sure we all have, you know, a, a lot, a library of stories of those, uh, opportunities that we messed up, but then you still got to pick yourself up and keep going. Um, cause the hunt's not over yet. And that's been a huge, that's been hugely beneficial in my, uh, just my mental toughness as a skier. Because I would say like less than 10% of the time in my competitive career on skis have conditions been completely ideal and I've been in a mental and physical state where I just felt unstoppable. And those moments are great when you're like, I cannot lose today. The, today is my day. I feel great. The conditions are perfect. There's just nothing that can stop me today. But most of the time you're dealing with some kind of nagging injury or you know, like in Beijing, we were dealing with some of the worst wind we've ever competed in. Um, whatever it is that you're dealing with, you still have the hunt's not over yet. You know, you're still out there. The competition's going to go on whether the conditions are ideal or not. And so that's one way in which hunting has helped me uh, just be a better athlete. And there's another thing that I <clears throat> have learned or realized over the last, you know, eight years that I've been bow hunting uh, is that I need that solace because I'm naturally an introvert. I'm, I'm generally a quiet person. Don't speak unless uh, somebody asks me a question or I feel like I, there's something that I absolutely have to say. Most of the time I'd rather sit and listen than talk. And so um, in my professional realm, I'm constantly talking. I'm constantly, you know, being interviewed or doing this sit down or that talk or whatever. And it just, I don't know, it kind of, it kind of distracts me from who I really am or, or I, I kind of tend to forget 
who I am and what I really feel like I'm here to do. So going out in the woods and having that solace, um, just being in those quiet places for long periods of time kind of gives me a chance to have an interaction with the creator and just be like, wow, thank you for making this. This is so cool. I'm so, I feel so fortunate to be able to experience that. And then when I have that as a foundation going into a long season skiing, um, I'm a lot more ready for it. Yeah. Fantastic. That's, uh, that's very cool. So, you know, one thing I want to touch on today, um, it, you know, you've made some personal choices in your personal life, um, you know, when it comes to hunting, um, that, you know, it's, it's a bit controversial, I guess we'll say. Um, and, and it's cost you sponsors ultimately cost you money. You've made decisions that have gone above and beyond. And, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of hunters, they, they, they keep it quiet. They don't want to tell the story. They're like very quiet about it. Um, you know, I think you're right. We're all ambassadors. We have a responsibility to try and normalize hunting, get people to support it. And, and if we don't, if we don't kind of nurture that, we we run the risk of losing it. But you, you've gone above and beyond. You, you know, professionally uh, throughout your career, you you've stood by it. And, and not only are you speaking the language, you're kind of rubbing people's face in it with first light, right? You know, you're you're wearing the uniform on the hill of a hunter, right? Um, so you've really gone above and beyond. Can you talk about how important that is to you and, and kind of the struggles you've had and kind of your end goals? Because that, that is a huge decision and, and something that I have a lot of respect for you for doing, David. Yeah, I mean, I talked to my my whole team of people who helped me do what I do. And <clears throat> there was a conversation that I had uh, right before the Olympics in 2018 uh, where we were talking about this exact thing because I kind of told them all, my my agent, my PR person, my wife, everybody. I was like, after this Olympics, I'm going to be a lot more public. I've already I've already been public. I had already done a couple of hunting TV shows at that point. But I was like, no, after this Olympics, the gloves are coming off. I really want to take more of an ownership of this aspect of who I am. And <clears throat> there was plenty of conversations about that. And some of them were like, some of the people were like, oh, why don't you just why don't you just hunt and not talk about it? Like it's, it's not a, it's not hard. There's, if, if you knew how many professional baseball players and professional golfers and professional, this professional athletes are hunters that are kind of closet hunters, you, it would boggle your mind. And so they kind of, uh, there was almost this suggestion like, well, why don't you just hunt and not talk about it? And um, <clears throat> in this world of social media and, all these various forms of media that we have now, I just realized like I couldn't be inauthentic and still be happy or content. I was like, I can't, I can't hide a portion of my life. That's such a big part of who I am and still feel like I'm being honest with my followers or my people who care about what I have to say. So I still, you know, I'm still respectful of the non hunters. I don't share a lot of, um, I don't share a lot of my hunts on my Mr. David Wise Instagram profile. We created a uh, like kind of a sub channel called Wise OTG or Wise Off the Grid. So um, I kind of felt like that was my way of saying, hey, I'm going to put this stuff out there. But if you don't want to see it and you still want to follow my skiing, you can do so. Um, so, you know, I just try to find the balance there. But for me, it was about authenticity. I just realized that hunting was a huge, such a huge part of who I am. And I wanted, like you said, I wanted to normalize hunting. I wanted to be a face in, in the world. that's like, this guy is not just a hunter. He is a professional skier who hunts. And so I just kind of embraced that as an opportunity to, to go out there and, and do more of what I loved, but also share it with other people and, and get more people into it. Cause like you said, if we don't, if we don't at least normalize it or, um, you know, just make it so that it's more acceptable to, to the people at large, the reality is the hunters are such a small part of the population, especially when you look at things like the legislative population. <clears throat> so few legislators are hunters. So if we're not good about using our voice uh, when we can to promote hunting, um, but also kind of make it acceptable to other people, then it's not too far in the future when laws are going to get changed and opportunities to hunt are going to get smaller and smaller. Yeah. Well said, you know, it's interesting, your perspective there. And it, you know, I always think like, Oh, I, I got to do my job as a hunter and promote hunting and 
you know, try and do my job to normalize it. But it's interesting there that, you know, from your perspective, it sounded sounds to me like organically you're doing that, but realistically you're just you're just being authentic. You're just living your life. You're doing what you're doing, and you're telling the story. You're not really doing it for the greater good necessarily of hunters. You're doing it because that's who you are, and you're sharing that story. And it's an interesting perspective because. I guess maybe the difference is, is that people don't really care what I do because I'm not a professional athlete. Um, so they don't really care about, um, so I'm not, I don't really have a platform for it. So it's interesting your perspective and, you know, uh, I guess we're all benefiting from your platform mm -hmm. and the fact that you are being authentic, right? Yeah. And in terms of the negative consequences of doing that, <clears throat> um, that was something that was highlighted and there certainly were some, some, high paying sponsors that did drop me because I was public about the fact that I was a hunter and I believed in eating, you know, in self-sustainability and eating wild game meat and uh, doing just doing life in this particular sustainable way. Um, but I also gained, <laughs> I feel like in, in, in the, the net profit realm, it was pretty much even because um, because I was more public about my hunting, I was able to sign a deal with first light and with vortex. And, um, you know, just if anything, my soul, I may, I may be probably if I was being honest with myself, I'm poorer than I would have been if I never came out about publicly came out as publicly as I have about being a hunter, but in terms of contentment and just opportunities for joy, uh, I, it was a major win for me because I can be more authentic. I can do what I like to do and not have to worry about offending people. If, if they're offended, then so be it. Right on. Um, just, so just curious, you know, obviously you picked up some hunting, um, you know, circle sponsors, but is there any that you feel that because of your stance that, that like a mainstream brand, have, have you, uh, you know, picked up any through that because of your stance? Do you feel that maybe some crossover brands or stuff like that? Like, a, is there any of that going on or not really? It's been more just the hunting community that you maybe have picked up some brand sponsorship from. Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. I think that, um, I think that people, like there are certain brands that, that are just outdoor lifestyle brands that have kind of seen me as like, Oh, you're, you would be a great partnership for us because you are active not only in skiing and not only in mountain biking and not only in hunting, but in all of those things kind of seasonally. So um, that's one aspect in which this decision to be more public about my hunting has helped me professionally. Cause you know, I can do partnerships with a broader range of companies because most of my peers um, you know, everybody probably has an energy drink deal, but other than that, it's pretty much comes down to, um, inside the industry sponsors and it's trying to take off a small slice of a pretty small pie already. And so I've been able to expand beyond that outside of the skiing world, uh, because of the other things that I do. Yeah, right on. So, you know, you, you talked about coming out more publicly in favor of hunting and, and your lifestyle, I think it was after uh, Punchang, right? Or Punyang. Uh, is that yep. correct? Is that what you, so That's have right. you seen in an evolution over this last four and four years of you and, you know, having done that initially, you lost some sponsors. Have you seen more of a sort of a normalization? People are okay with it. Like, Oh, you know, David Wise is a hunter, but he's a normal guy. And he's, he's not this like trophy hunter, this psycho crazed human being. He's actually a normal human being. Have you seen an evolution in those four years or has it been the same? Just kind of really no change. No, I think it, if anything, I was pleasantly surprised by how little negative feedback I got. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I lost some sponsors. I kind of knew those sponsors were on their way out anyways. So it was, it didn't feel like a great loss to me because it always felt like a partnership that didn't quite fit. Um, but I think a, a huge part of uh, what I've seen, especially in the last couple of years is, you know, when people realized when COVID hit and people realized uh, that things that they had been able to depend on for so long and had just taken for granted were no longer available, you know, going to buy meat from the store at certain points was impossible. Um access to to eggs like we have we have chickens here at the house and just things like that became so much more difficult that i think people started realizing wow 
there is something to this, you know, providing your own meat lifestyle that Dave's been talking about. So if anything, over the last couple of years, it's the, the conversation has started to shift and I can't take response. I can't take credit for that, but I certainly uh, want to be a positive force in that, uh, in that conversation. Yeah, right on. Just curious, like with your professional athlete buddies, uh, does anyone give you a hard time that, uh, just curious if you, you get any of that stuff going on? Oh yeah. Um, I definitely have some vegan, uh, peers and, you know, but they don't really give me a hard time. It kind of, it kind of is a conversation that comes up and they say, well, I'm a vegan cause I believe in respecting animals to their as much as possible. And I say, well, I'm a hunter because I believe in respecting animals as much as possible. And <clears throat> the reality is we wouldn't have deer and elk in North America at all. Uh, if, or bears or any of the species, a lot of the species were nearly extirpated. And, um, the, the model for conservation as hunters is what brought them back. So I'm, I, I always say that I'm like, I'm not, I'm not a hunter cause I want to kill them all. I'm a hunter because I want to feed my family and have this experience in the wild. And in doing so, I believe in respecting the animals as much as possible. If anything, I have more respect for some of those animals that I hunt than you even could because I have more familiarity with them. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's never for me. And I, maybe I just haven't run across somebody who's crazy enough or out, outspoken enough to, to really hate them. I mean, I get plenty of hate on social media, but I've learned to just not care about what anybody says behind, from behind a computer screen or a, or a cell phone screen. Um, but in terms of personal interactions I've had, they've all been pretty cordial conversations where it's like, this is why I believe in what I do. And when I, when I explain it the way that I do, um, for the most part, even the vegans are like, okay, well, I, I still wish you didn't do that, but I can respect that you have made that choice for yourself. Interesting. It, I've got a couple of vegan friends that, uh, you know, quite often we'll talk about this stuff and, you know, why do what I do. And, and two, two in particular have said to me several times that, you know, they have more respect for me and my meat consumption than somebody that goes to the supermarket and does it. That, you know, as we know, with the supermarket, lots of times it's, you know, mass production and it's, you know, uh, you know, industry, some industry practices that, you know, vegans don't agree with, right? So the, the whole concept of sustainability, free range, organic, the fact that you're connecting with your animal, that you're out there harvesting it, you're showing a level of respect, you're processing the food, you're cooking it. There's all these connections that you make with vegans. And I've actually had some pretty impactful conversations with vegans. And I thought it was pretty interesting that, you know, there are a lot of commonalities between the one, the one disconnect is they don't want to see an animal die. So that's where, you know, you kind of lose the vegan, right? Right. Yeah. And that, that's a tough conversation to have because the animal is going to die anyways, just like we all are, too. So um, that and yeah, that, that's kind of I've had very similar conversations. And I think it's it's interesting because um, processing and butchering my own animals that I take um, always seems kind of natural to me. I didn't think that that I didn't think that anybody didn't do that. Um, <clears throat> but when I, when I tell people, especially, especially the vegans, but everybody who has this conversation with me, I say, no, I harvest the meat and then I process the meat. I, I pretty much from literally every step from the field to the table. Um, I, I take a hands-on role in that because I want to know that the animal was respected as much as possible. When you start speaking about it that way, and I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize people who don't have enough time to butcher their meat themselves. It's actually a really daunting task. Like when you, for me, when I kill a bull elk, um, it's like a 12 to 16 hour process to process the whole animal. You got to field butcher it. And then when you get it home, I often try to age it, you know, you age it a little bit and then you do the, the, the mass butchering where you're separating steaks and roasts and then you're making this gigantic grind pile and then you got to grind it all up and then you got to figure out what you're going to add to it. Uh, it's a very daunting process, but it's a super satisfying part of the process to me too. So when people find out that I go to that extra level of respect for the animal, uh, it almost kind of removes the ammunition from their mm -hmm. gun when they're trying to, they're trying to shoot at me for something because um, they're like, well, I mean, I do see that even though I wish that animal never had to die, if it was taken by you, if, if you were the one who killed it, 
it really did see the most respect it possibly could have. And so that's, that's kind of the lens that I try to live my hunts through too. It's like, okay, is this, am I taking a shot that I should take or am I being greedy? And there's like, there's certainly an aspect of greed that sneaks in for me when I'm hunting, like, Oh, it's a big old buck. All right. It's 112 yards. I've made that shot plenty of times with my bow in the backyard. It's easy to just put an arrow on the string and try to think about letting it fly. But uh, I try to be better and better about remembering like, okay, if I was that deer at 112 yards, would I want the hunter to take that shot? Probably not. So, um, you know, maybe I can get a little closer or if I can't, it's not meant to be. All right on. Uh, now, do you have a favorite protein just out of curiosity? Is there something like, I know you said you love the elk cause it fills the freezer, but is that your favorite protein as well? Uh, man, I, I used to think that elk was going to win forever. Um, but I don't know. I, I get to the point now where I just like variety. So mm-hmm. it's not like I have a personal favorite every, like I, I, I don't, I no longer have a personal favorite meat forever. Uh, my favorite meat is the thing that I'm cooking tonight. You know, it's like <laughs> I got to, uh, I drew a U tag and got to uh, harvest a, a desert sheep. And I was like, wow, this is some of the best meat I've ever had. And I had heard bad things about it too. People were like, oh, you, you really, you're going to eat that desert sheep? Or you're probably just going to taste like sagebrush. Or, I don't mm-hmm. know what they said it was going to taste like. It didn't taste like what they told me it was going to. Um, I got to go to Hawaii and shoot an axis deer and a mouflon and both of those were just my favorite meat of the week you know so um <clears throat> there are certainly some animals that i'm like okay this is not my favorite meat but it's still pretty good but uh i've kind of like strayed away from that you know only elk all the time because elk still is i think consistently my favorite because it's just so mild and there's so many things you can do with it mm-hmm. but um man there's a lot of deer there's a lot of there's a lot of herbivores out there that are delicious to eat <laughs> yeah like right now i've got black bear stone sheep moose and some deer left in my freezer and i, I feel that it's it's whatever i'm cooking at that time is what's what's my favorite like my daughter loves black bear and then she'll be like okay well next time make the lasagna with moose or whatever right it's it's whatever's cool. cooking at the time so yeah the variety is huge if you have any uh any competitions up in Canada, let us know. Steve's going to send you some protein. We'll get that across the border for you. We'll just ship oh, it to where you're going. Perfect. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right on. So, you know, um, what, what's what's uh, the plan for the rest of the year? So we talked about, you know, your profession, professionally what you're going to do. We, we know a little bit about that. What's your hunt for the – I guess it will depend on some tags or what's what do you got on the agenda there? Yeah, today uh, – <clears throat> Today, as of recording, is our last uh, day to apply for states for tags in Nevada. So, um, yeah, North America, like U.S. Western hunting is all about what tags you drew. So I put in for Montana and New Mexico and Arizona and didn't draw anything in any of those states. There's some over-the-counter hunts that I do every year in Utah. So um, those are certainly on the docket for deer and elk over there. Um, and then I put in my tags yesterday for Nevada. So we'll see what I draw. Um, I, I live in a pretty fortunate spot. I mean, I, I can get to Idaho, Montana, um, California. There's states around me that have more opportunity. Nevada is a great state for hunting, but it's a limited state in terms of drawing tags. Um, just because, you know, it's a high desert state. There's fewer animals. There's fewer, there's, there's less uh, places for the animals to live and thrive. So there's fewer tags available, but I'm able to just within driving distance, uh, get to a lot of Western hunting. So, um, if anything, my hunt plans always end up more full than, than I anticipated. I'm like, Oh man, I didn't draw any tags this year. I guess I won't really be doing too much hunting, but I always seem to find a way to hunt this tag over the counter. or Oh, go to this place. Uh, one of my favorite, one of one of the things I'm most looking forward to is, uh, I'm going to sneak down to lanai and do a little bit of hunting down in hawaii here at the end of the month so that's kind of a good warm-up for me for for bow season even though it's basically the beginning of the summer most of my most of the archery tags in nevada and the surrounding states are early august on through end of september um but i'll be doing a little may little may um axis deer and mouflon chase so that'll be fun cool yeah do they have goats and 
what, what they got goats down there too. They got hogs, obviously. Yeah, I haven't. I've never seen. I don't think. I don't think they have any wild goats on Lanai, but they definitely okay. have them in Maui. Um, right. So yeah, we're we're kind of focusing on the the island of Lanai this trip, but um, I definitely have. I've seen some of those guys go out and hunt wild goats, and that looks pretty fun too. So maybe we'll add that on the end. Yeah. Right on. Well, cool, David. Um, Steve, anything else for David before we wrap up? No, I. Uh... I wanted to throw in that I absolutely love the Wise OTG channel. Like I've been watching it oh, for a while. You. It's like so cool, and it's it's drastically different than uh, your your Mister David Wise. And yep. your your wife has been great in all these communications with trying to reschedule. And when I first reached out to her, I said uh, want to do a podcast. She says, "Oh, it'd be great. All he ever wants to do is talk about hunting." So yeah. <laughs> it, it, she 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 was great, and truly truly appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again. We wish you uh, all great success this year. We'll be watching closely, and uh, we'll have to try and convince you to come up to Canada for a hunt here, and we can hang out and go chase something around. Oh, yeah. Hey, man. I just I'm easy to talk into it. You don't even have to twist my arm. Awesome. Thank you.